Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 31 of the Seat Struck Movie Podcast. Uh, my name's John, and joining me today is our co-host, Quinn. Hey, guys. How's it going? Oh, I think today's going to be a fun one. Uh, it's just me and Quinn today. Curtis is still away on his little escapade to the UK. I think he'll probably be back next week. So uh, we'll we'll see when he gets back next week what we're up to. But uh, I, I've seen some pictures. Looks like he's doing well. Uh, a lot of traveling around. Um, he's going to share some stories, I'm sure, once he comes back. Uh, it's a beautiful day here in Ottawa. It's been warm the last week or so. It's. Uh, I mean, I always find like March, spring. While the weather is nice because, you know, you know, like plus 10 hits different in like October than it does in like March, like in October, if it's plus 10, you're like putting on your toque and like four sweaters in March, you're just like stripping down bare naked. But uh, I always find it's an odd season because all the snow is melting and it's just like garbage. It it looks kind of messy, but uh, it'll it'll look nice soon. But uh, it's got that smell too, that like almost like manure (laughs) smell. It smells terrible. Yeah. Everyone, every bad dog owner who just let their dog shit in like snow banks, you just see it everywhere. It doesn't look so yeah 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 odd odd times for sure but it's also super nice to like look out your window every morning and you don't have to scrape the car or you don't have to like do anything you're like i think we're i think we're out of the weeds anyway i hope so yeah anyways today is an exciting one uh we're back on our john carpenter watch a series beat um i believe this is i don't remember which entry this is but this is the next uh john carpenter movie the 1983 horror classic an adaptation actually i think this is the first carpenter uh well i guess the thing was technically an adaptation but this is um certainly probably his most notable one this is the 1983 film uh christine or also called john carpenter's christine you know at this point he was through this point all the way through the rest of his career he was like john carpenter present it was like him as the you know at this point he kind of established himself as a you know the burgeoning master of horror um this one is cool of course before we get into the 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 I guess the movie itself. Uh, also, I note, of course, this is based on a a novel by Stephen King. Have you read the uh, Christine novel? I haven't myself, so I I have actually. Oh, you have? Okay, yeah. yeah. So that's that's good because I, I know there's a lot of differences between the uh, the novel. Well, not a lot, but there's there's differences a bit in the novel versus the movie. So that's good. We can speak a bit about that because uh, I haven't seen. Uh, then I haven't read the novel, but when I was, you know, doing some notes on this episode, I looked a little bit at the novel details and there is, there's a little bit of changes, especially at the beginning and ending of the, of the film are, are quite changed from the, from the source material. So I guess, um, to give a little backstory, you know, previously on, uh, the John Carpenter watch series, we of course talked the thing, which is probably John Carpenter's probably his most critically acclaimed film. I would say, I mean, that in Halloween commercially critically, at least today by today's standards are probably like his most popular films um so in this case um john carpenter at the time um had a chance because of you know some of his success that had come from movies like halloween and other releases had you know had built some cachet in hollywood so um during sort of um this period of time he had been tagged to direct uh firestarter um and had also been looked at for this role for this film um but of course the thing was a huge box office failure kind of a disaster it lost him that role on firestarter um but at the time uh, Stephen king of course in the same year released christine in that same year it was like basically already adapt pegged to be adapted into a film uh, this was sort of like the the peak of of king when you know he would write a novel and like that same year it was writing it's like okay we got the movie the miniseries planned out it was like a a, a huge thing um so the producer um, Richard uh, Kobritz, he had actually tagged um, John Carpenter as his first choice. He'd been a producer on 
uh, Salem's Lot, the adaptation of that uh, of that book, and had been you know acquainted with King. He had the rights to this um, book uh, as an adaptation, and so Kobritz had actually had a little bit of a relationship with John Carpenter. Um, they had collaborated on the uh, the network television uh, ship movie uh, Someone's Watching Me, which we talked about in a previous episode. A movie that I actually thought was pretty cool. I, I dug that one, and uh, so John Carpenter you know, got attached to this film. He had tabbed uh, Bill Phillips to write an adapted screenplay uh, based on King's novel. Um, and he also brought in uh, Roy Arbogast, who was his main special effects guy on The Thing. It's kind of cool to watch this in between The Thing because there is a little bit of, I mean, it's like body horror. It's like, you know, car body horror when we just get the car, like kind of, it's like reverse shot of it, like melting or being crushed of like building itself back up. It's really kind of clever and fun. Oh, how yeah. they uh, how they film a lot of that, and uh, according to uh, Bill Phillips on the DVD uh, documentary about this film, uh, this movie apparently didn't at the time actually have enough violence to justify an R rating, um, but they were worried that uh, if the movie went out with like a PG rating, you know, at this time PG thirteen wasn't a thing, so it was PG or R. They were worried if it came out as PG, no one would go see the movie. It was like too violent, too scary for kids or wider audiences. So he purposely inserted the word "fuck" in its derivatives in order to get an R rating. And um, also, this film is an iconic use of the swear word "shitter," which uh, I guess that's in the King novel. I've never heard "shitter" get used anywhere else, but I feel like "shitter" is used probably like. 12 times in this movie or 15 times i'm gonna have to add it to my vocabulary because it's a, a pretty great word to uh to call <laughs> someone or express your outrage about something but uh yeah and john carpenter looked at christine sort of as sort of like a you know it was like a job he didn't really attach himself you know because of course he didn't write the script this is sort of one of the ones that he didn't actually directly write uh he did direct it and did do the music on it but it wasn't something like the thing or or halloween where he didn't really have a, a close attachment to it. So, or, so he kind of felt like he kind of had to do this film too for the sake of his career following um, the, the failure of the thing. So, you know, to kind of keep himself going. Um, I guess uh, we can get into a little bit of, 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 the, of the movie itself. Of course, well, I guess maybe I'll, I'll kind of, I'll, I'll, I'll tab you as our little novel uh, source expert, uh, so, sort of, because I, I know there's a little bit of changes, I believe from the novel itself. Notably, I think the beginning of this, uh, of the novel, it, like a lot of King works, uh, especially the adaptations of them, I find the King adaptations strip out a lot of like the world building and a lot of like more of like the paranormal focus. King's really obsessed around, you know, building like a little universe. Like I really, I haven't been, I'm, I'm kind of on an ongoing King series, read, read series. I'm only like just at the end of, of, uh, of The Shining, so I've still got like a million books to go, but I did read Salem's Lot and I loved it because it was, it, it builds this whole town with so many characters and allows you to really kind of see the seedy underbelly of the town and all these, you know, twisted personalities and minds and, you know, King really kind of does a good job at focusing on that. A lot of his horror is more the horror of, of everyone, uh, of looking at sort of the nuclear family, like 50s Americana and showing it's not all it's cracked up to be. I was reading a really interesting review on Letterboxd that said, you know, the, the thing about King is that he's not really a horror writer. He's sort of like a Walt Disney of like twisted personalities and twisted minds. And I thought that psychological, was psychological, more like psychological. Yeah, exactly. And I, my understanding is the novel actually like it, it makes it more like the the car itself has been sort of infiltrated by this like spirit of the of I yeah. think it's LeMay, the person who sort of sold the car, the brother that rather that owned the car. And it, it sort of more focuses on that yeah. uh, rather than uh, what we get in this film, which is an opening. It's sort of like a little little opener where we get this flashback to the to September 1957, where it's at this assembly plant in Detroit. It's shot really cool. We get this really wide. We get the really anamorphic uh, lens that you know um, that carpenter is known for we get a really wide view of the shop and we get this assembly line of cars in this you know cherry red car in the middle and we see 
um, an assistant who's working on it. You know, he opens up the hood, goes to kind of stick his hand in and slams down shut, like clamps on his arm, crushing his hand. He's injured. Um, and then later, of course, we see a worker uh, climbs in, sits on the wheel and he's smoking a big cigar and he's like ashing it out of the car. As soon as I saw him ashing it out, fall in the seat, I was like, oh, that, that man's in trouble. <laughs> and then and then later, like near the end, like uh, someone's coming in, I guess it's the end of a shift. Someone's coming in, they open the door and he falls out dead, presumably from uh, from carbon. I believe it's carbon monoxide poisoning. And so yeah. that sort of sets sort of the intro. And then the rest of this film really takes place uh, 21 years later in, in September and then through to November in, in 1978 um, in California. And you can tell it's California. It's, it looks like, I think it's, I believe this was shot uh, sort of near like Pasadena. It looks just like uh, Halloween, almost like a lot of the streets and yeah. roads. I wouldn't shock me if they reused some of the neighborhood locations of, of that uh, movie, but kind of uh, shot a little bit differently. I guess before we kind of get into it, uh, watching this for me, this was a rewatch. Have you seen uh, the movie Christine before? I think you actually own it, correct? On on TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I saw it for the first time not even that long ago, like maybe a mm. couple of years ago. Like I said, I had read the movie or I had read the novel rather in uh, in high school. So I remember mm. like some things like different differently about the film and the uh, and the novel. Uh, particularly one being that the car was a f- the car was a four door in the book yeah and it's a two-door in the film it was a yeah i don't know it's been so long since i've read it but um yeah uh this would be i guess my second time watching it um yeah how about you was this your first time watching it or I, I have seen this one before. I know I watched it when I was much younger, but uh, yeah, for me, like coming back to this, I had, it's been a long time since I've seen this movie. So for me, it was almost yeah. like kind of like a, a rewatch. I do remember the opening with the, with the, with the guy getting his arm crushed and all that, like a lot of that I remembered, but I forgot pretty much the entire bulk of the rest of this film. So, you know, coming back for me, it was pretty fresh. And if you're, if you're familiar, I'd say with like, Stephen King and the, this this certainly the story of it and the characters it, it's like pure King we get this like taking place in this high school where uh, like in every King novel all the bullies are just total fucking psychopaths who want to like stab and murder everyone like you watch <laughs> it and all the like greaser bullies are like they pull out knives and they're ready to stab or cut everyone and then the, in the novels it's like oh yeah they were abused at home and their parents hate them and they're alcoholics and you know it really it's really like a feel bad type of a uh, family unit but in this one of course it follows uh kind of like two characters primarily uh arnold cunningham aka arnie he's a sort of dorky uh kid he's played greatly by uh keith gordon he's got these goofy uh, almost kind of look like mine like a big frame like glasses on um he's just kind of it's kind of like I, I i thought almost him and his friend um dennis it reminded me of like the the old the way old like the 50s like the jack lalane like the 90 pound weakling getting like sand kicked in his face from like the big jock and it's like oh if you follow this program you can be just like him like a real man it's yeah. contrasting this little weakling sort of sniveling guy who's insecure and popular um who's sort of obsessing over girls but you know no one cares about him uh, over his friend uh, seemingly his only friend played by this guy uh his name's dennis uh uh gilder he's played by uh uh, John Stockwell. Kind of funny enough, Keith Gordon and John Stockwell are also directors of their own. They've done their own kind of uh, offshoot films, but it's kind of a I had I had like a hard time kind of understanding why they're even like friends. Like Dennis is just like swa- like you would almost kind of consider him to fit in with like the you know kind of the the dicks in, in this film, like all the other popular kids are or kind of shitheads. But it is kind of funny. They have this like little kind of weird contrasting friendship, um, almost a little bit overtly like friendship. Like there's like many scenes of them almost like shirtless and like touching. I don't know. I, I thought there was a little bit of uh, it, it was it was pretty funny. But um, of course, uh, 
the scene that kind of triggers everything. We see uh, Dennis and Arnie get confronted by this uh, bully character. Well, actually, I should say before that, we see there's this girl who's sort of um, at, at the school. I believe her name is Lee, Lee or uh, yeah, it's Lee. Cl- classic Carpenter. No, it's like every movie he has like, a character named Lee in it. It's pretty funny or it seems like it anyway. Yeah. Um, and uh, she's there. She's a sort of, uh, you know, everyone's obsessing over her, um, but she's sort of this, uh, I guess, bookish character. Like she doesn't really want to date anyone. And it's like, it's typical like teen eighties, like teen drama uh, stuff. And we get, of course, uh, like a- every good eighties teen drama, we get a bully character who looks solidly like 45 years old. Like this guy's like got like a five o'clock shadow. He looks like he's ready to get his pension in 10 years. Like, I'm like, <laughs> how is this guy like 17? And the teacher comes up to stop him because they're getting in the scuffle. He stabs his like the Artie's lunch bag. And the, and the teacher's like, you know, like I'm going to have to send you the principal. <laughs> the teacher's like two feet smaller than him. This guy's like j- jacked up and he's got like crazy hair going on too. Dude, that, uh, I have that. I, I noticed that so clearly yeah. in like every 80s movie. Like I recently watched uh, Teen Wolf mm-hmm. and I'm like looking at all these people and I'm like, you're telling me this guy's a high school student? Like, yeah, he, yeah. Looks like he looks like he's 35 and you're like, what? Like, <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah, like Teen Wolf, all those like all those movies, like I just don't buy it. Like, I just don't. Yeah, buy they look it. like they're like a college basketball team, but they're supposed to be like 15 years old. You're like, oh, God, I got to have my... <laughs> gotta get home for my dinner with my parents and they look like they're maybe like within a a range of like 12 years from their parents age um but uh, another thing i kind of liked about this too i I love movies and this is true of like these kind of 80s horrors where like you get like the goofball like the kids and they're all kind of like like the bullies are like wise guys almost like they're they're like voices and then you get the parents and the mom is like arnold come back soon like almost like a transatlantic uh accent Uh, you know a lot of these like you know 40s 50s actors and actresses like you know they 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 were kind of struggling in the 80s they had to start a lot of these like uh almost some of them like exploitation movies and you know they get these characters like hey wise guy voices and you get them like richard uh please come to it it kind of took me out of it it was so funny but uh yeah so um Arnie gets his like glasses crutch, you know, it reminded me of my glasses. So I was a little bit, you know, struck by that, but uh, you know, they're picking on him, bullying him and uh, they're driving home and they're driving past this sort of forest area. And Arnie looks over, he's like, yo, stop, like pull over. They go check. And there's this old dilapidated uh, Christine, the car, as he finds out Um, the car itself is also a a 1958 Plymouth Fury. And I should just talk a little bit about it because um, they actually, I think they had like 24 different cars they used on this film. Um, so they had kind of some copies of the car that were just like showcase copies, like probably in this scene and some of the other ones where it doesn't do anything. It's just there. And then, of course, later scenes where the car is in action and they, they had like a supercharged version of the car. And apparently, if you look under the, the cast, you can kind of see there's like different colorings uh, where you can define it. But, uh, you know, they used very different, many different copies of it. Um and uh, for, for the regenerator, I should just kind of skip ahead a little bit for, of course, this car gets, you know, damaged, kind of crushed, but it regenerates. And, um, you know, John Carpenter planned uh, to film regeneration scenes for this, but Arbogast actually um, created rubber models of the car. And so they actually shot it backwards of like crushing this rubber model together and then kind of rewinding. And that's what kind of gives you that, you know, regeneration uh, scene that they kind of reuse in the movie. And, uh, you know, most of the cars of the, after this were sold for scrap, but there are still some that survive. And there's actually, I was reading that one was auctioned off as recently as in, in this, as 2020. I can't remember how much for it. it must've been like a you know ton of money, but there's still a few out there. You probably could see them at some really like high end, like car shows or something, if they ever do that for kind of like car movie show car shows with like movie cars and stuff like that but uh yeah it's kind of it's kind of cool and i i think it's it's a good choice because a lot of this film really is kind of skewering like a lot of king stuff is sort of skewering 50s americana sort of skewering the idea of like 
just like masculinity as defined through car ownership of this sort of like twisted car that is like a corrupting force. It's supposed to be this like symbol of power independence. It's showing how it really kind of, you know, siphons away at your soul and, you know, kind of leaves you hollowed and bitter and, and almost like evil in a way. Um, but of course, you know, Arnie, Arnie's really struck by this car and he, he ends up buying it for, I think it's $250, which I actually checked it by today's standards. That's uh, let me see. I've got the numbers. I crunched the numbers. It's uh, $1,122 buying power now in 2022 for Americans. So, you know, it's, it's still pretty cheap, but uh, when I heard the 250, I was like, Holy shit, that's a, uh, what a deal. Um, yeah. But we, we, of course he buys the car, he brings it and then he brings it to uh, Will Darnell's garage. And I, I fucking love that scene where yeah. they drive this dilapidated car in the garage, spewing smoke everywhere. And Darnell confronts Arnie and he's just like, what the fuck is going on? He just has this back and forth with him. And okay. Arnie's such a goofball with him. And he's like, like, let, he's like, kid, you better not screw around with me. And he's like poking at him. And, uh, and uh, you know, the net result is he lets him keep the car there and actually work on it. And Arnie, to his credit, kind of shows himself to be, you know, I'm pretty engaged with it. You know, he's this like shy, you know, kind of outcast kid, but he's, he seemingly is pretty good at, you know, working on cars. So he's kind of working on this car, building it. And Darnell says, you know what? Okay. You can have the car here, work on it. You spare parts out in my lot. But as long as you, um, he said, clean up after yourself, he's like, change the toilet rolls, you know, and the holders. I might even throw in a couple little bucks here and there. And I care what he says, but he's just like, uh, but he says something and he's like, I'll have to think about it. And the guy's just like, what are you doing? He's like, there's no deal here. Like, this is what it's going to be. But uh, uh, of course now Arnie's spending more time with Christine. Christine's almost like uh, drugs in this movie. It's like, you know, bad influence, you know, Arnie starts showing up and he's like starting to dress more and more like a, almost like a greaser type, like with the fit with a pompadour hair. And he's uh, got like the, the black jacket. And then later he's got like the, almost like the Christine red coat as well too. Um, I guess before we skip further, like, what did you think about just the characters in general, Arnie and, and Dennis? Cause like, to be honest, I, I just thought like the performances were a little hokey for me myself. Like I, I like kind of the, the, the overall plot line of the car and, and that sort of thing. But I, I don't know. I just, to me, it kind of felt like I was watching like a, you know, a bad King adaptation, which there's plenty of those, even ones I like, there's some that are kind of, you know, shoddy and, and the performances are great to me. It kind of felt like that. What did you think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's funny that you say that because when I first saw the movie like two years ago, I actually really liked it. And I was like, oh, wow, this this might actually be up there with like one of my favorite, like, I don't know, like Carpenter films. Like, I just love yeah. it, especially like I, I did. I, I just even though I don't remember that much about the novel. I, I, I do remember enjoying it. And there's some other um, <clears throat> novels by King that I'm not too crazy about. I know you just finished or you're almost done reading The Shining and like. The Shining is one of my favorite movies of all time, but the, the novel didn't really do that much for me, to be honest. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I know it's interesting. Like, um, I, I yeah, I thought the characters were pretty bland too. Like, to be honest, like just being a like a big fan of cars in general, yeah. like the car, the car is my favorite character. And yes. like, yeah, the car is my favorite character. And I do love that garage, like the little garage that they have. Like, yeah. I think it's super cool. And like, obviously like towards the end obviously like we'll get to that but um the big like when the car is at its peak anger we'll we'll say um yeah i, I just i think the car is is kind of cool and it's one of those ones where i found myself sort of like rooting for the villain like i like the car yeah. i and i just think it's cool like especially with the regeneration shots like we mentioned but uh yeah overall acting wise like uh yeah it doesn't really do much for me it's like 
it just seems super hokey and super cheap and just yeah so i'm uh i'm i'm team christine all the way yeah and it's cool too like christine actually kind of like gets activated we get this like the the hood like the radio lights up and it's in green which i guess is sort of would would also be paralleled in in king's directorial effort in, in maximum overdrive with the kind of the green hue kind of showing the machines yeah. is, and cars is taken over and that noise it green. makes too that's like my favorite part of the movie yeah, like the sound. I, I think like I, I was kind of thinking about this like this morning and a little bit because I watched it. I rewatched this last night. And um, yeah, like, to me, if I had to kind of split the movie in half to me, like the first half of this movie would really be like maybe like a two star movie. I was like shocked at how much I really did like like the first like half hour of this movie. I'm like, wow, this just stinks. The characters are terrible. The direction, frankly, wasn't that good either. And then I think the last the second half of this film, I was like, this is like a four star movie. Like once yeah, the car better. is actually activated and like a presence. Um, not only that, like like uh, Carpenter's score really kicks in too, and I'm like, wow, I was actually really getting into it. It was kind of a shame that like so much was kind of wasted in like the the beginning. Um, but I should note, of course, uh, Siskel and Ebert. I'm a big you know Siskel and Ebert head, especially Same. Ebert. And uh, you know Ebert was uh, he famously wasn't a fan of a lot of Carpenter stuff. Gave I think he gave a thumbs down to like the, uh, the thing and also Escape from New York. But in this one, I was watching uh, today on YouTube. Him and Ebert, Siskel and Ebert were both gave it a thumbs up. They both kind of reminisced about their own life. Ebert was like, you know, when I was a kid, I bought like a 1954 Ford and worked on it. He's like, I thought this movie did a great job at capturing kind of the obsessiveness you could have as a teenage boy, like working on a car. So a lot, they put a lot of their own feelings into it. They're like, I love the, the horror, the horror aspect of it. And they were kind of, it was kind of funny, like watching that. I'm like, so you, you like this, but you didn't like, like the thing, like what the, what yeah, the hell is wrong with you? It, but, I know it's, a, it's weird. I, I'm a big Ebert fan too. Yeah. And, I, and I find sometimes like I'll watch a movie and then I'll be like, I wonder what he, Ebert thought about it. So I'll go back to his old review and I'll be like, Oh, he's right on the money. Like I agree with him. Then other times they see something that like blows me away. And then I go back and watch it and he's like giving it like two stars. And I'm like, what? And like, yeah, he chews it out. Like, it's just weird. Like sometimes I agree with him. Sometimes I completely disagree with him. Yeah. One of the things I like about Eber too, is like, he always like puts his own like morals into his like reviews. There's a lot of films that he gives like once one star or like, you know, on, on like that, the movies gives like a thumbs down where he's like, he looks at it and he kind of finds the movie repugnant, which like, considering a lot of like 70s and 80s directs probably a little bit of truth to it but then it's like dude you wrote like valley of the dolls or whatever like who are you to say like you've got a and it was funny re-watching um i was talking about uh on our what we watched i mentioned i watched the 98 godzilla that movie has it the mayor in that movie is like mayor ebert and there's like a assistant who's supposed to be like gene siskel i always thought like why were they in the movie i think it was sort of a response to probably like siskel and ebert being pretty down on like independence day or a lot of like roland emmerich stuff yeah. uh but I, I was watching like uh the the at the movies where uh uh, Ebert, uh, Siskel and Ebert were talking about Godzilla and they're kind of like, why, why were we in this movie? Like, why did he put us in this movie? Uh, that, <laughs> that was kind of funny. But anyways, I, I thought it was kind of funny. Ebert even said like in this written review saying like, you know, you know, this movie at the end, you know, Christine's developed such a formidable personality that we're, we're kind of taking sides during the deal with the bulldozer. This is kind of the kind of movie where you walk out with a silly grin, get in your car and lay rubber halfway down the Eisenhower. So I thought he put it up pretty well. Uh, but I love the needle drops in this movie. Like when Christine's on and activated, we get those songs on the radio and they're all kind of songs that are sort of uh, linked to events in the movie. Like, you know, like the to get like there's when when um dennis is trying to get in the car like it plays that song that song comes up with the bullies are beating on the car and of course we get the great bad of the bone george thorgood which i just realized that song released like one year before this movie so it was like a contemporary song at the time I, i'm so that song is such a classic like i'm so used to that as like a classic like dad rock anthem but i'm like oh this was actually like the equivalent of like 
I don't know, uh, a song that came out last year, like being in a, you know, it's it's actually right. kind of current, but uh, apparently George Thurgood was actually supposed to be in the ending scene of this film where they're, uh, oh, he yeah. was supposed to show him crushing. I was listening to this on another podcast talking about this movie. They were supposed to show him crushing the car. Um, but uh, apparently, the corner of what they said in that podcast, they said his acting was so terrible that like Carpenter cut the scene, but didn't even include it as like a bleeding scene. They just like took it out entirely. Man, um, I want to see that so bad. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of interesting like casting choices that almost happened too. Like, I believe um, originally like Scott Bayow and Brooke Shields were supposed to be like Dennis and Lee, but they. Um, they wanted to go with, yeah they wanted to go with like people that were a little bit more popular and famous but they ended up deciding like let's go with kind of like a lesser known cast which i think even by carpenter standards this is probably like his one of his lesser known casts except the great harry dean stan who just inexplicably is in this movie as sort of a cop who's like investigating as you know rudy jenkins he's just walking around he's like he wants to know what's going on and uh, i appreciated seeing him in this movie he just pops up like in the last hour of the movie you know yep. i appreciate seeing him but he doesn't have much to really do in the movie itself to be honest like he just shows up a few moments and then and of course, at the end. But uh, of course, as I was saying, Arnie, you know, has now Christine's been like kind of fixed and, and is is back. And it's sort of almost like taking over Arnie. And Lee sees that, too. She's hanging out with Arnie and his personality's changing. He's becoming more angry. He's like bullying his parents. He like shoves his dad or like chokes him out almost like he's becoming kind of unstable. And uh, they're at a drive in and Arnie and her are getting a little uh, soft together and Lee kind of gets up abruptly you know she's um, a little bit off put by his behavior um, but he comes back they sit down and when uh, Arnie gets out because the car has like uh, something pops up with the windshield the wiper stop working he gets up to fix it uh, the car locks itself the lights turn on song turns on and Lee begins to choke on her hamburger and she's really choking choking seemingly about to you know to lose it and then finally like uh, the local uh, guy nearby opens the car door and gives it the Heimlich maneuver. And I love that. Artie's like, get your hands off her. She's <laughs> like choking out. It's just like a total idiot. And uh, uh, we get that great scene later when, uh, you know, the bullies, it's Buddy Repperton, that's his name, the big curly haired guy and all of his little accolades. You know, they're angry about Arnie after what happened with that shop class incident that got them expelled. Uh, they go to the shop to really, you know, vandalize the car and fuck around with it and uh, beat the shit out of it. Arnie comes back with Lee and the car is just wrecked. And I felt bad for Arnie then too, because at this point, while he is kind of a little bit of like, a, not like a, I guess you're kind of starting to not really like him that much, but I still felt bad for him because like, you know, that's something you put time and effort into and energy. And I kind of was like, I, I felt a little bit sad that, you know, something that he actually genuinely like had aspirations for and worked on, worked hard on, you know, kind of fell on the wayside. Uh, but that's OBK because then the car seeks revenge. We see uh, Christine's back fully repaired. Uh, we see at that point uh, Darnell actually had to open the door because it was all fucked up and goes inside. And uh, well, actually, I'm skipping ahead a bit. The car goes on kind of like a rampage. I think Moochie's in the alley and the car is like chasing. What a great moment. That's when the score really kicks in. I think that's really when this movie really starts to kick off is when the car is sort of getting into revenge mode. And that's I'm right. like. At the same time, I'm like, why wouldn't you just like go up a hill? <laughs> just go go up a staircase. The car can't get you, but whatever. I digress. Yeah. Um, pretty cool <laughs> kill though. Moochie's running around. The car's chasing Moochie around. And what's cool is the car's got like this black windshield. It's all that's all tinted out. And Carpenter did, yeah. did that deliberately, so you couldn't tell if it was Arnie driving it. Yeah, you couldn't see. Yeah, the stunt driver, but you also couldn't tell if Arnie was driving it or if it was the car itself. A little bit of ambiguity there. Right. Um, and we see. Um, a really great scene. Moochie's like stuck in that little like uh, parking spot on like bad or a little like uh, kind of receiving door, like bad spot. And the car just, you know, crushes him. Um, but we see uh, later Christine is going out um, 
going after other people, goes after Don and Richie. And it's a grass. That's probably my favorite sequence when they're at the gas station and the car shows up and uh, we see the car like drive in and crush the other car, crushes this car and causes a gas leak and a great explosion. One of the best, probably, I mean, the thing has some great explosions too, but this is probably the best one to date from Carpenter. We get that big car shop, just blowing the fuck apart. Great practical effects there. And uh, which leads to probably my favorite shot of the film, which is the car on fire, Christine on fire, chasing after Richie and, you know, running over him. And it's cool too, because I think they they do a good job almost like personifying the car. Like when, when you see it kind of, driving down like the highway with like covered in flames with the two lights lights it looks like eyes like the car almost looks a little bit personified and even later when it's kind of crushed with its sort of front of gate and with with the light it looks like a dangling eyeball or something it looks almost like a a monster almost like it gives it a lot of personality which as Mm -hmm. you put it like the car as a character um certainly applies um but of course the car drives back to the shop it's all burnt out and then darnell walks over and the car is still hot, but he opens it up and there's nothing inside. Very spooky. Climbs inside and the car kills him. It crushes him, pushes the seat forward and really, uh, you know, crushes him. Um, but of course, the next day, uh, the car is seemingly restored. It's fine. But Darnell's body's there. Um, Arnie, of course, wasn't there. He was busy with Darnell. I think he was driving off somewhere to drop off something. And then he's got an alibi. But of course, not him. But he comes back and, uh, you know, Junkins, the detective, you know, he's not sure about what's going on with Christine. He seems kind of suspicious that maybe Christine is almost like driving itself. I like when movie characters, they don't waste a lot of time be like going back and forth when they're just kind of like right away, like, you know, something's amiss, you know, I think the car is evil. It's like, okay, I can appreciate that. We don't have to spend 20 minutes of back and forth, needless, uh, you know, needless conversation. But um, um, of course, uh, Lee breaks up with Arnie, you know, after all the stuff that's been happening. Uh, Dennis Lee seemingly are kind of becoming closer, but they're kind of, you know, seemingly turned off by Arnie. Like earlier in the film, like Arnie's driving with Dennis and he's like losing his mind. He's driving into the other side of traffic. And he's like, I can't what he says. He's like, he's like driving a car like this. There's nothing better except pussy or something like that. Yeah, something yeah. Like that. <laughs> and, um, and uh, this of course is leading towards the ending of the film where they set up this, uh, this really big trap for the car they have in the garage and they're going to, you know, crush the car with the uh, the bulldozer. You know, good on Dennis for having like bulldozer training and knowing how to operate it. Apparently, the character himself, <laughs> know, the actor, right? apparently the actor actually had to get licensed training to, to operate it. Which I'm like, yeah, no kidding. It's like throw a random like 17 year old kid in. Like, how the hell is he gonna operate this thing? You can. That's there's right. barely any of that kids that age who can drive a forklift. You know, let alone a bulldozer. But uh, they they set a trap at the garage and like uh, I don't know what the hell he's doing in this. Like she's just like standing around. There's so many times I'm like, get out of the way. Like she's just standing like straight in front of the car and just like move uh but the it's a great sequence when the car is you know they realize the car is aware and is sort of um uh they're going after them but we see that arnie's actually inside the car and it's a great shot with arnie's almost like ghastly looking like almost like the car is really like sucking the life out of him um but they're the car is driving around it tries to drive around to tackle lee and he's kind of blocked like the garage so the car can't get in and then lee goes into the building uh to hide the car circles around drives through smashes into the desk can't reach her but arnie like flies out of the windshield uh stabbed with like a big piece of broken glass so he he dies it's a little bit sweet and christine kind of plays this little tune to kind of um play him out it's a little bit of like a little bittersweet moment uh but of course then that leads again to the rest of the action where the car is trying to go after them again and dennis is able to get the uh bulldozer to actually kind of 
crush on top of the car and it seems like the car is still going like the car is like driving ahead and like the bulldozer is getting lifted up it, it's got this power uh but i really appreciate the fact that like they don't you know in the book as mentioned the book uh well this happens in the movie too but they go back and visit um uh the shop where LeBay is george LeBay, you know played by the same old guy who was in i think home alone right it was to play the old man in that movie so that kind of yep. uh yeah, I was like, hey, it's that guy. But uh, we find out his brother actually owned the car and it actually killed himself. So he kind of sees this car as like this kind of cursed car. And the, the novel really kind of gets into that. It's sort of like the heart of the novel from what I could tell is that it really focuses on this brother character who owned this car. And, and I think it involves him like trying to find his body or something. It's a little bit of paranormal stuff, but uh, um, less so in, in this in this film. In this film, it kind of plays it like a little bit more ambiguous. Like we don't really know why the car is evil. It just sort of was born evil and, you know, by the end, you know, we it's still alive. Seemingly, we don't really know. It's it's a little bit ambiguous, which I really, uh, I really appreciated it. But we see that uh, he crashes in with the bulldozer, <laughs> drives the shit out of the car, and then at the end, a great ending where we see the car now crushed into a cube. I, I you know, I, it made me think of the Simpsons, where it's like, please move your car. Your car will be crushed into a cube. You've got ten minutes to move your car. Your car's been crushed into a cube. You have ten minutes to move your cube. You know, we get the car squished into a big block, and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a little funny and i love carpenter he's not afraid to throw a little uh, comedic elements and he even himself i think he describes this a little bit as sort of like a a horror comedy but it's not really that much of a comedy like there's a couple oh. of funny spots but i'm like I'm, I'm not laughing in this movie but uh you know we get the music playing and the bat of the bow and you think oh the car's coming back to life no it's just some guy walking around with a boom yeah. box looks Hilarious. over like what are you looking at me for and walks away um but we see uh they leave and we see before the screen cuts to black we get the the bumper starting to kind of lift itself up presumably the car you know kind of like the iron giant you know he's coming back to yep. life folks not the end don't cry because it's over smile because it happened and yep. ends with a great needle drop with bad of the bone and i like carpenter this period of time he's using the same credits title and end credits like every movie like it's that black with white text it's like the same it's like he just took the same stuff he used on the thing and threw it on yeah uh, which just I delete enjoy. one name and put the new one in <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah and i uh, just talking about more about like where it's shot yeah this was shot in la i think the garage scenes they did santa clarita uh but yeah most of it is done in in california and pasadena and actually alexandra paul who plays lee uh she had a, tw a twin sister an identical twin sister and i believe i don't exactly know what part of the movie it is i think it's when she's riding in the the bulldozer but she actually pranked carpenter where she swapped her sister in and uh, filmed the scene. And I actually believe that she went to Carpenter after and she's like, so am I fired? And he's like, what are you talking about? And he told, she told her what happened. And he was like, oh, I had no idea. So I believe it's actually in the film. I don't remember what specific moment, but it's a moment in the film where her twin identical sister's in uh, her place instead. Um, but that, yeah, that's Christine. I mean, this movie, when it came out, did okay. Like by, I think it had like about a budget of 10 million, made like 21. Of course, at this point, it's kind of now is sort of like a bit of a cult classic. It's got like a second life on kind of, uh, you know, DVD and Blu-ray and, you know, rentals. Like I watched this as a kid on probably like on DVD or tape. And I know you have a tape as well too. Um, and got some pretty good reviews. People were pleasantly pleased by it. Uh, nothing too uh, crazy though. And I think this film has like a lot of influence on pretty much any movie to come after that, that involves like possessed cars really. Like certainly like Maximum Overdrive, you get Maximum Overdrive because of this movie. Uh, really. And of course, this movie itself of the characters are certainly inspired by a lot of 50s Americana, like Rebel Without a Cause, especially like American Graffiti too. You know, Arnie's character, he's almost like this little uh, greaser type. And I think, I can't remember what the line is, but there's a line where he, I think he's just like, thank you very much, like back to the guy. And it's like calling back to Elvis too. And uh, 
Um, so drive-in movie stuff as well too we get that scene with the drive-in i'm like we're just one scene away from makeout points or whatever and we'd have the full 50s american experience or him driving away and then getting into a fable accident or something yeah. uh and uh yeah i think i think christine has actually popped up again surprisingly there's never been a christine sequel like a lot of king movies get like really bad you know straight to video straight to dvd like uh sequels or, or remakes and you know there's been like carry sequels and but no christine too i like, would have thought like this would have made for really good material to like do a second one with you know much less practical effects and probably like infinitely shittier or shitter the shitter as i should put it but uh, uh but yeah but no did, it's it, he did a music video actually now oh, john yeah. john carpenter was the last thing he directed in 2017 mm-hmm. he did a john carpenter christine music video no, actually. Yes, it's called, it's four minutes long. I've never seen it. But the reason why I bring that up is because I'm like, I thought he did like some type of TV movie or something like that, like a remake. But yeah, it's uh, a girl hitching a ride as her car is broken, stumbles upon a familiar Plymouth Fury. Oh, interesting. Four minutes. So I'd like to check that out. So I guess I guess in a way we got a little short. We got a little short. Season. There we go. We got something. We got something. You know, give us something, Carpenter. You know, I know you just want to smoke weed and watch basketball, play video games if you're not touring with your son. But, you know, give us something, you know, give the movie nerds a little bit of something. That's uh, it. But and I actually think I haven't seen um, like Ready Player One, but I believe there's a se- there's this moment where you could see the car in because that movie has like a bunch of. There's so many references. Yeah, I've seen Ready Player One twice and the second time like I noticed way more and like it's funny because um yeah you need to watch Ready Player One really cool movie but um yeah it's being like you know the nerds that we are like you will definitely notice like a lot of shit that the average person wouldn't and Mm -hmm. uh yeah Christine is in the movie as is the Iron Giant Oh, that's right. Yeah. And um, I mean, Christine's been parodied reference and so many other stuff. We could probably do like a recurring, you know, did the Simpsons mention it before? Because like, I'm pretty sure they've parodied this in the Simpsons. Any, any, any media or movie that involves like a haunted car, haunted vehicle, almost certainly owes it back to this film. Yeah, and again, Christine. like, yeah. And, uh, and I, again, I, I, we didn't talk much about the soundtrack. Like we talked about the needle drops, like with Bad to the Bone, George Thorgood and like Not Fade Away, Buddy Holly, um, some pretty good, pretty good ones. Uh, we get the, a little, in a little bit of on the radio too, we get a little bit of, I think, Runaway uh, by Bonnie Raitt, like the cover by Bonnie Raitt. We also get the, the Beast of Burden with the bullies when they're driving. That's a great, yeah. I was like, oh man. It's a decent soundtrack. Yeah, it's some really good needle drops, I would say. And Carpenter, like, I think a lot of his films have underrated, like, diagenic music. Like, I mean, um, even, like, The Thing, where we get the superstition by Stevie Wonder. I don't know if we mentioned that in that review, but, like, that's, like, probably one of my favorite moments where, you know, we're, we're hearing... Uh, uh, Keith, uh, Keith David's character listen to that and then we get the dog kind of emerging it's a great scene I think he does a kind of an underrated job sometimes with his use of, of kind of needle drops uh, over a lot of others uh, but it's the the overall score is pretty good like I think um, it's a little bit kind of lesser known I think compared to some of his other, his other ones um, um, like certainly like even like they live or stuff like that um, which have kind of more iconic like in the theme titles this one a little bit less so but it works pretty well especially the sequences with the cars finally kind of activated and going after them it really helps give the movie some real drive and tension um, but yeah that's pretty much Christine anything else you want to mention like I, I to me re-watching it like you said it was a little bit of a disappointment because like I really just did not like the first half of this movie I thought it was sloppy the characters throughout I didn't like the characters it's probably the first Carpenter movie where I just didn't care for the characters at all. Like, I think that's one of the strengths of Carpenter is having really great characters. The Thing, amazing, great cast of characters and performers. Um, 
I love how he has these recurring kind of cast members that kind of show up in his movies. This one, we get Harry Dean Stanton, but that's pretty much it. Like it's, it's not like anyone else that you see in his other films, which was kind of a bit of a bummer to me. Um, and yeah, I just it, like the middling, it was just like sea level Stephen King fair, but the second half of this film, it really kicks off. So I think like, if you're willing to stick around, like watching the second half of this, like when I finally, the car finally is activated and stalking everyone. And, you know, we see like the, 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 the remaining millions of dollars of budget that was poured in this movie. That's where it all went. Uh, like, what were your thoughts? I guess maybe we could kind of merge this into our ratings. Cause I don't really have much more to say. Like, I think by, by a carpenter standards, I would say like this one isn't one that a lot of people would go back on as being, you know, sort of like one of his classics, but there are people who really do enjoy, appreciate this movie, much like something like The Fog, which is something I would kind of consider that maybe around the same tiers of Fog or even maybe a little bit below. But um, I guess we could get into scores. Like, what did you think overall about uh, Christine? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, overall, um, it's, a, it's a decent movie. It's not bad. Yeah. Obviously, like I covered before, my favorite character is the car itself. It's a beautiful car, and I love the cinematography, especially in the gas station scene uh, towards the ending and stuff like that. And the the regeneration scenes were fantastic. Uh, overall, I gave it a three point five out of five, just because of the lack of sympathy I have for the actors, the characters. I just, yeah, overall, they're just like blah. They're very forgettable, and like. I think after watching it the first time a couple of years ago, I really liked it. And then when I watched it again last night on tape, I was like, there's, there was only a few things that I've remembered about it, but the main thing was, is the, the things that I remembered were the best parts of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> so, so a lot of it's a lot of it, I find is very forgettable. So like, yeah, I don't think I could give it anything over a 3.5 out of five, but I would definitely like, um, you know, I, I've heard rumors about, you know, them remaking the thing, like, again, sort of thing. And I'm like, don't do that. Like, leave that on its own. Um, you know, Halloween has gone down the shitter. Hey. <laughs> so, so we'll leave that where it is. But, you know, yeah. most of Carpenter stuff, like, oh, my God, if they ever did Big Trouble in Little China, like, I would blow a gasket. But, um yeah, I think a lot of Carpenter's work needs to be left alone. But to be honest, I think Christine, um, it would be really cool if someone remade that today and like made it really good. I think there's potential there. So yeah, 3.5 yeah. out of 5 for me. Um, yeah, I'm definitely down to see a Christine sequel. I think I think the world's ready for that one. The world but, is ready. The world, the world needs is... a Christine sequel. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of cool that you. I want to touch on what you said too, like about a like you know remakes. Apparently, this movie actually has been tabbed. Uh, potentially to be remade. Uh, I was reading, it's actually on the Wikipedia. It says on June, 2021, Sony and Blumhouse announced the development of a remake uh, with Brian Fuller, who's, you know, the guy behind uh, Hannibal, American Gods, a lot of stuff. Brian Fuller penning the script and directing, uh, you know, Jason Blum producing, I think Vincenzo Natalie, who did, uh, he did the cube and and that into the tall grass that Stephen King one. He's like a kind of a current dude uh, producing. So that's kind of interesting. So I think you're kind of bang on. Like, I think this movie, you know, especially like thinking about car culture, like this, this, the eighties was the peak period of fifties nostalgia. And, you know, that's really looking at like fifties car culture. I, I, I wonder if you wouldn't do like a fifties car, if you would do like maybe like an eighties, like sports car or something like that. I mean, you can do a DeLorean cause like back to the future, but like, I wonder yeah. if you could kind of do something like hearkening back to, 
a lot of movies and remakes coming out now are like almost doing like 20 year cycles away like the thing did or like sorry like Stephen King's it was like the 1990 looking back on like 1950s and then the sequel was like now looking back on like 1990s so it's sort of like the 30 year gaps i wonder if maybe you would do something like that and you know there's so so much stuff you could do with it with all car technology now like self-driving and all that stuff you could have a scene with like a reverse camera showing someone get smushed or something i I shouldn't give them ideas you know that's my idea you know don't steal that but uh uh, (laughs) yeah overall i'm kind of in the same camp as you i gave it a three out of five pretty good movie enjoyable um i would like to see i don't know if i think this has a 4k resto i would like to see maybe like a um, like a resto of this, what that would look like. Although I had a copy that looked pretty good, but um, yeah, overall, like I, I think for me, like again, the, I just didn't like the characters. I thought um, the the adapted the ad, the adapted script that uh, was done was okay. Like it cut, cuts out a lot of the, the the like the the heart of this movie. I think a little bit of like the driving force behind it. I've heard the novel's pretty good, so check that one out. But yeah, to me, the second of this film really shines, but it's a bit too short. Like it's like. By that point, like the movie's almost over. There's like a couple of sequences of the car, you know, going ham and then the movie kind of just winds down. But uh, yeah, I did. I thought Keith, uh, Keith Gordon, like, I I mean, I guess he's campy enough. Like, it's pretty fun to watch them go like full like greaser. And that was kind of fun. But I'm like, I kind of wish there was more about him. Like, there would have made more sense to kind of focus on him and his anguish and all that stuff. Like, I think if you did the movie now, maybe that would be more of it. Like, I felt like it was just juggling kind of like too many things like even the whole lee and dennis kind of plot line to me just didn't really work so yeah three and a half uh, sorry three three out of five for me a decent watch probably like one of the lesser carpenter ones we've seen now overall though we give it a 3.25 so pretty decent score if you like your horrors especially if you love stephen king adaptations if you love that this is on that list uh check out uh christine uh, now we're moving into our what did we watch this week i think you only watched one quinn so why don't you uh kick us off what did you watch yeah um yeah i had a really busy week so i didn't get to watch a lot but uh last night i rewatched christine on tape and then i also pulled out friday the 13th part hey, eight jason classic. takes manhattan jason takes vancouver <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah that's right basically yeah it should be jason takes on a boat that ends up docking in manhattan and then he goes to Times square to see the sights that's, that's, pretty much what it, that's pretty much what it should be. But yeah. Uh, yeah, basically, you know, I like the Friday the 13th movies, some a lot mm-hmm. better than others. This one is okay. It's kind of fun. Um, like I said, just a bunch of people, they're on a boat and they're going towards Manhattan and there's a big, big storm. Jason's like holding onto a fucking rope hanging off the side of the fucking boat. <laughs> and he ends up getting on the boat and starts killing people and they end up docking in Manhattan, chases them through the streets including a couple who hops on a subway and they go to Times Square and he ends up going to Times Square and looking around in full costume and kicks the shit out of a fucking boombox. He's walking by yeah. and just fucking boots it. And then they all pull out their Dude. knives and he's just like, whoop, lifts and up his mask. There's one, there's one, the, there's the one scene I all, I completely forgot about where the couple, like they go right into the subway station and he, wa- <laughs> he walks up and like, body checks the like the glass door and like he just goes through the glass and it like slow-mos and like the sound of breaking glass is like off key with like how it's breaking it's the funniest thing ever like it's so unnecessary like he just goes through but honestly i think it's a fun movie i know people like they kind of shit on this one but i don't know i I, it's it's cool it's a cool one so yeah i checked that out 
Yeah, Basically. that one's sort of at the end of the series when, like, at that point, the budget was pretty thin. And, like, even the yeah. violence is kind of, like, there's barely any blood in it, too. So you could probably, you could almost give it, like, a PG-13 now. Like, I don't even know if there's any nudity. It's just kind of, like, a, it's, yeah, it's pretty the, fun. No, yeah. I think there's, like, one chick who's, like, in the tub and you see her topless, kind of, for, like, a second. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, at the beginning, yeah. Yeah, but, like, yeah, the, some of the kills are hilarious. Like, he'll, he opens, like, the trap door in the in the boat. And this girl's like lying on her back and she's like, no, no. And he's like, he has this like spear. Yeah. yeah spear, and he's just like slowly going down towards her. And she's literally like, it's the worst acting I've ever seen. She's like, no, no, no. I pull away from the mic to breathe. Yeah. Yeah. He like goes <laughs> down and it takes him like 20 seconds to get down to her chest. And then he just like stabs her like blood mm. goes everywhere. It's like, I don't know. It's fun. It's it's funny. It's like yeah, it's a good time. Jason. Yeah, Jason. I think on the show notes I'll just say we we spoilers because I also got to mention the probably the best kill where the guy's boxing Jason and you think he's gonna beat Jason and Jason you know he's pretty tired at that point he's like come on give me what you got and Jason just fucking punches his head off his body and it like lands in a dumpster <laughs> and like closes. I mean that's that's great. Oh fuck, we got once we do our Friday the Thirteenth watch series. Oh man, uh, you know Friday the Thirteenth is my favorite series, so I'm yeah. I'm down to get into that. But uh, yep. Cool, cool. I guess I'll get into what, what I watched. I watched a really weird eclectic mix of stuff. I started off the week, uh, well, I guess last weekend. Um, we were just kind of looking for stuff to watch. And we're like, why don't we do like a double feature sort of a really shitty like rom- rom-coms, like chick, chick flicks, as you can put it that way, which is kind of a funny way to label these movies because these movies are about dudes just banging hotties. These aren't even like chick flicks. Like, I don't see if you're a woman how you could really enjoy these movies because it's really about hot dudes. Um trying to hook up with like brainless women and they're just really like misogynistic and mean towards women and i'm like I, it's weird that these are classified that way because i'm like wouldn't you rather see a movie where like matthew mcconaughey's just like naked shagging like wouldn't that appeal more to women than like these movies but nonetheless watch them ghost of girlfriends past with matthew mcconaughey you know a classic uh what can i say it's it's pretty much kind of like a remake of like american uh of, sorry like a christmas carol it's about like matthew mcconaughey he's this famous photographer his best friend's getting married he's like hey come to my wedding and, you know, the whole time he's like, bah humbug, I hate marriage. It's a terrible institution. He's always like a player. He shags everyone. And then it's like him ha- going to bed, having this kind of dream of, you know, his, uh, I think it's like the, the Cratchit character is like Michael, Michael Douglas. And it's like him as this like womanizer. And that's what kind of inspired him. And there's this other character played by Jennifer Gardner. It's a little bit like Scrooge too. It's like Bill Murray and Scrooge where he had this relationship fall apart. He's now this kind of misogyny, you know, media mogul. It's kind of like the same thing doing the same stuff pretty terrible not very good not funny uh pretty mean-spirited too a lot of gay jokes as you get in these movies and i thought it was terrible and then i watched good luck chuck which is even sh- infinitely shittier infinitely more mean i actually gave ghost the girlfriend's past like an extra half star rating because i'm like this movie isn't that mean like G- good luck chuck is like borderline like like rapist pair like like paranoia like there's a whole like probably like a whole five minute scene of like a woman who's she's a fat woman and like it's the, the whole joke of the of that is just like how gross she is and them like there's it's just terrible like you watch even then it was bad but especially now it's it's horrid, horrid. and like you know at least Matthew McConaughey Jennifer Gardner have chemistry like Matthew McConaughey is a good actor of course uh Dane Cook is like horrendous like uh, him him and uh sexy baby Jessica Alba have like no chemistry whatsoever it's like horrendous to watch and it's kind of although I think the movie is like marginally a little bit funnier because at least like it seems like they kind of run out of script like throughout like halfway through the movie and then it's pretty much just Dane Cook doing his sort of manic stand-up bits and it's kind of funny because like you know he's a comedian he's got some 
charm, I guess, but pretty repugnant movie. Like it's just so me. And like, what's his name? Uh, Dan Fogel plays his friend. who's like a, he's like a breast doctor and like the grossest fucking character. Like, I'm like, don't tell the fucking Harry Potter kids. He watched all those like Grindelwald movies. Cause if they find this movie, he's going to get canceled. Like this movie's, I feel like every guy who worked on this movie is it's going to get me too at some point. I actually think the director of this movie was a good friend of like Brian Singer. I'm like, doesn't surprise me. Doesn't shock yeah. me. Cause this is pretty, pretty fucking gross. Anyways, terrible movies. If you had to watch one or the other at gunpoint, you probably at least preferred ghosts of girlfriends past. At least it's got some charm, kind of a happy ending, I guess. Uh, anyways, on to <laughs> what's that? I haven't seen either of those. Well, I hope I sold you on them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right anyway. after this, I'm going to watch good luck truck. Yeah, yeah, do double billing like Friday the Thirteenth Part Eight. Like, like Sean, uh, I watched. Uh, I watched. Uh, I got tipped off by this. It was on my watch list. I, I'm a big fan of the trailers from Hell YouTube channel where they they talk to directors and kind of show a trailer. And one of the episodes is a uh, you know you know uh, you know the late uh, Larry Cohen talking about uh, the Samuel Fuller movie uh, Park Row. It was a, a 1952 movie by Samuel Fuller who uh, is kind of known uh, doing like so, a lot of like kind of like 50s and 60s like genre films. He also acted a little bit in his background he actually worked in media and worked in newspapers kind of like the years following the story this is kind of a movie about the the turn of the century it's sort of like a tribute i think the title card at the beginning it's like this is like a a movie in dedication to like the journalists and newspaper men of of america and it's, it's very like if, if you're into journalism if you're right if you work in media newspapers and you're especially a fan of kind of the turn of the century the late 18th 19th century of the golden age of like newspapers where every day in new york city there was like 20 or 30 different newspapers the globe the times you name it um this movie is really about that it stars uh and i think larry cohen refers to him as sort of like a you know a dollar store uh spencer tracy um gene evans and also uh mary welch who i believe she she died young like she passed away i think like five years after this movie but she's good in it and they play this sort of it's a story about this newspaper uh care um, newspaper men and they're kind of sad about the way things are going in media newspapers and you know they're not covering the true stories nowadays it's you know it's like you know life imitates itself the same stories over and over again but nonetheless he decides they're going to separate form their own newspaper company and the movie really chronicles that it helps that you know samuel fuller has a really good eye for camera there's some really great shots um a little really good like kind of long takes as well too i which i really appreciated and overall like you know it's it's a it's a it's a black and white film from the 50s it's not too long uh, i really enjoyed it though it was uh, if you especially like the media and the news and you're into that sort of thing i think you might appreciate it um you know i thought the performances were kind of okay you know it's not like you're not really getting like the big triple a stars of this era but it was pretty fine probably like samuel fuller's best film uh, to be honest and then i had a really good experience i got to go uh, here in ottawa Back in, you know, March 2020, when the pandemic hit, they were supposed to have uh, the inaugural International Film Festival Ottawa start. It got delayed because of the pandemic. And then the next year, it also got delayed. So this year, it was finally kicking off here in the city. They're doing a bunch of showings at the uh, the Ottawa Art Gallery, as well as at the Bytown Cinema. And this, this is a film that uh, I heard of. It was on my watch list. Uh, it came out in 2019. Did a little bit of the festival circuit, but was kind of cut short. So this was sort of like a it's sort of reemergence. Um, it's a film by Matt Rankin, the great Canadian director called uh, The 20th Century. Um, just Matt Rankin, he's sort of like um, very much in in inspired and kind of influenced. I actually think he worked for him as an art director uh, from Guy Madden, who's like a famous director from Winnipeg, who is kind of known for a lot of his um, 
sort of films that kind of take a lot of elements of like silent films, like a lot of montage films, a lot of like elements of that. And, and this one's no stranger to that. It feels like a confluence of like montage films and also like German expressionism. And if, if you're a fan of like 1920s style filmmaking and that sort of uh, a scene, and even a little bit of like kids in the hall, there's a lot of humor in this film, a lot of guys dressed as women. And it kind of gave me the vibes of like the early nineties kids in the hall, which, and, and like Monty Python, which it's certainly inspired by too. And it's a film about uh, Canada's uh, great prime minister, you know, uh, William Lionel Mackenzie King, who's known as like, you know, the longest serving prime minister in Canadian history, uh, who's, who became the leader of the Liberal Party at the beginning of the 20th century and was the prime minister, I think three different terms uh, through to the end of World War II. And, it's, and, it, and it kind of chronicles him. And the movie is very biting. It's very anti in a lot of ways. It's, it's kind of funny because I was I got to see this at the screening with Matt Rankin there. We had a Q&A after. And it was funny because I think, you know, Matt Rankin kind of described this film as being kind of like, you know, very critical of Canada and its institutions and its colonial past. I mean, the film is very explicitly, explicitly like kind of anti colonial Anglo Canada. There's a whole fun scene where they're all kind of watching. It's like those war propaganda films. It's about like the Boer War and it's like the Boers and these these people with kind of elephant noses. And I guess it's a little bit of like parodying like, you know, tropes that depict like the Jews like in Germany. And it's sort of like, look at these vermin and everyone's like booing. And then it's like, we have another enemy too. And it's like the French Canadian. It's like this person emerging from an egg and they're like, boo, it's very like critical of like English Canada. And, you know, for being, you know, very, uh, for its colonial past and its racism and class, it's really very skewing that. But to, in a way to me, it felt kind of, you know, pro-Canadian because it's just so Canadian and it, it's sort of like a love letter to, uh, you know, Canadian filmmaking and a lot of, if you, if you, if you know Canadian history, I think you'll really appreciate this movie. If you don't, especially if you're American, I think you're going to be really fucking confused and be like, what the fuck? Um, has a lot of like surreal, it's very absurd. It's really surreal. Um, I've heard a few people kind of call it like lynching and I don't like that word, but it, you know, it kind of applies, but I really dug it really fun. Uh, just really, I've never seen a movie like it. I, I thought it was just really an interesting experience and, you know, good performances. Um, some some of the humor in it did land. Like, again, it's kind of like doing a little bit of like Kids in the Hall stuff. To me, the humor didn't land so much, but overall I had a, I had a fucking blast. So the 20th century, I think it's streaming somewhere, but I don't know. It, you'll probably find it soon if it's not. So, and then um, this week I also watched, um, I'm a year late, but we watched the HBO miniseries um, Mayor of Easttown starring Kate Winslet. I, I loved it. I thought it was cool. I did think it was, there was a lot of shit happening in it. Like it was, it didn't do anything really function, functionally different that like a, a show like The Sinner did, but I thought this was just like more of like a highbrow The Sinner. Um, I, I thought it was cool. I like that for all of, but the films, the shows today that are focused on like trauma and like intergenerational conflict and also trying to show women in kind of roles where they're like skilled and good. I like the fact that, you know, Kate Winslet's character, Mayor uh, Sheehan, like, you know, she's like, a, seemed to be a very good cop and someone that is sort of the whole sort of small town really like runs on her and depends on her. She's kind of a dick and an asshole. And like the, she, yep. the, the show doesn't really like cut court. You know, she's a lot of the problems that happen in the show involving her are kind of her fault. And the the show is not really showing her to be like a really a good character. She's very flawed, but I, I did really appreciate the fact that it did depict sort of like family trauma in, in this way and you know even shows kind of growth uh, but there's just so much stuff happening but I had a good time it was a good show I mean Kate Winslet is so great and, and even like the accents too I was yep. reading comments from people who live in like eastern northeastern Philly kind of at the edge of Pennsylvania 
who said like the the accents were spot on i i was really struck by it and um yeah the story was pretty engrossing too it's sort of this like murder mystery of this young girl in this community who's killed and there's all these suspects and the the show really kind of twists and turns from there and it's following this character who's dealing with a lot of her own grief her son killed himself and her family's fallen apart and you know she's really bitter and she's also like known as the sort of town she she won like a high school basketball game so she's kind of like a local celebrity so everyone kind of knows her but everyone's kind of sick of her like oh fuck it's mayor again they're like go away like they hate her she's such a a dick to them but uh I had a good time. Great performances. It's only about eight, eight episodes long, I think. So it's not, yeah. not super long. So yeah, it was, it was a good time. Super, super good. Like, uh, and just, just her performance as an alcoholic is yeah. so good. So well done and orchestrated. Like, yeah, I think Kate Winslet, I, I don't know if she is underrated per se, but I definitely think she, she should get more credit. Like some of her performances in her career, like revolutionary road, obviously Titanic, um, yeah, she's just a really, really good actress. And definitely. Yeah, I think she's like properly rated. She's one of the few that's like, I would say is, you know, most people would say she's in like the upper echelon of like, of like, of, of like women actors. And I'm like, probably like, she's just great. And like, I think that's yeah. probably bang on true. And yeah. uh, even now, even stuff today, like, and it's kind of cool again. I think she had talked about it herself because she produced the show, but you know, she really wanted a show that was going to focus on like, kind of like, an, she, uh, I, I kind of laugh because like, people like oh she's like an older woman i'm like she's like 45 whatever but like focusing on a woman over the age of 40 in a way where it allows her to be like you know strong independent um you know date around like it was kind of cool to see that i think you know she really wanted to have a character like that and it was kind of cool to see that you know she's still a, you know a really great performer and yeah a, a great great show um I, I think uh next week i don't know if we've got like a i think our next carpenter watch series is going to be on starman which i've never seen starman when I hear Starman, I think of the David Bowie song. I know it stars Jeff Bridges. I know it's kind of like more of like a romantic movie. I'm kind of, I don't know if it's going to be any good, but I, I'm open to all movies and I'm open to being pleasantly surprised. So uh, we're now entering kind of, I wouldn't call it the, the, dark, the dark period of Carpenter, but a period where we see, you know, kind of following the thing and what that meant for him in a bad way for his career. We see a lot of kind of peaks and valleys to follow uh, throughout the rest of the eighties and nineties. So we're going to see some interesting mix of stuff. Um, movies that I think are amazing though. Like we've got some stuff coming up. You've mentioned big trouble, little China, they live as well. Movies that I would probably put up there with the top five carpenters. So I'm excited to kind of get into those and some of his lesser known ones too, but otherwise we might do with some other stuff. We've also planning on potentially doing in April. So by the time this comes out, probably about a week or way or so, um, uh, a month of Shakespeare. That's, you know, that's the year I believe Shakespeare died. And I think it was the year he was born too, but we're going to do uh, for the four weeks, do uh, movies on Shakespeare. It could be adaptations too. Um, we're fig figuring out which ones we want to do. Um, certainly, I think I have a friend who wants to come on for Romeo and Juliet. So we're going to do that. We're going to probably do like uh, one of the Macbeths and we've got some stuff coming up. So that's going to be coming up in April. And uh, yeah, probably whatever else, you know, tickles our fancy. Who knows? I was thinking I saw episode 42 is coming up. You know, 42, is that the, the number of the meaning of life? So we could do like a life, or we could do like Hitchhiker's Guide of the Galaxy or something. I don't know. But uh, yeah. yeah, we could find some fun stuff there. But uh, yeah, that's about it. Uh, anything else you want to mention, uh, Quinn, or plug before we uh, we wrap up today? No, I don't think so, man. Just super, uh, yeah, Christine, super cool movie. Excited to get into the uh, the next stuff that yeah. uh, John Carpenter has to offer. I have Starman on tape, but I still haven't watched it. I've been saving oh, wow. it for the podcast, so definitely going to check that out. But yeah, no, thanks for listening, guys, and we'll see you next week. Yeah, take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.